0: Throughout the book of Acts, the church is rapidly growing. The number of believers is increasing every day. The church is something that will not be stopped, cannot be stopped. The gospel continues to spread, and no matter who tries to stop it, no matter what kind of walls are put up, what kind of barriers are put up, the gospel just will not be stopped. That's the entire theme of the book of Acts. The gospel cannot and will not be stopped. And so we see the church is rapidly growing and we catch up in Acts chapter 5. The church is growing so fast and the Jewish leadership wants to stop it. Now I say the Jewish leadership because it's important to differentiate between the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people. There are times when you are in a nation and the government or the leaders do not actually represent the people. I think some of us can sometimes uh, uh, relate to that, right? There are times when the leaders don't represent the people, and so that I want to make sure we understand that. The Jewish leadership hated Christ and hated Christians, but the church And Christianity was first and foremost a Jewish religion. It started from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. So the church is rapidly spreading throughout Judaism, and it can't be stopped. And in Acts chapter 5, we catch up with the Jewish leadership having a discussion on how they can stop the church. How they can stop the gospel. And they turn to this famous rabbi, this famous teacher named Gamaliel, for advice. And his advice is really simple. It's just let this play out. Because if this is of God, you can't stop it anyways. But if this is of people, it will die out on its own. And then he goes on to give examples of these false messiahs throughout the Jewish Second Temple Jewish history, there were false messiahs that were, that were presenting themselves. Now, there, there was this idea from Old Testament scripture of this messiah that would come. And there were, there are two different descriptions of him. One is this political, righteous ruler who would come and he'd clean house and he would end up becoming the ruler of the world. We still believe in that one. We believe that it's gonna happen on Jesus' second coming. But there is also another one that was painted and it was of the suffering servant, this Messiah that would come and he would suffer and he would die for your sins and for my sins. And the Jews who had been ruled by other nations, who had been oppressed by other nations because they so desired the righteous ruling Messiah, they totally skipped over the passages that talked about the suffering servant. And so they wanted this righteous ruler, and, and as Rome was ruling over them, as Rome was oppressing them, there were these different guys that would pop their heads up, and, and they'd gain a following, and they'd try to start a revolution, and they'd claim to be Messiah so that they could gain more people. And this happened quite a few times. And each time, the Romans killed the, the false Messiah. And what would happen after the false Messiah was killed is all the false Messiah's followers would disperse. They'd say, forget that. This is not worth it. You see, people are dying over here. I don't want to end up like him. I'm done. And so Gamaliel takes this lesson from history and he says, look, these false messiahs pop up. They're popping up everywhere. When he dies, that's the end of the movement. So instead of fighting against this, Jesus is dead. If he is a false messiah, don't do anything. If he is a false messiah, the movement will die on its own. However, if this is a movement of God, if Jesus did rise from the dead, there is nothing you can do to stop it. And actually, we see throughout the book of Acts, the more they try to stop it, the more it spreads. Think of like an oil fire that's getting slapped. And every time the Jewish leadership comes to slap that oil fire, what does it do? It just sends balls of fire going everywhere and actually spreads the fire more and more. And we see that that's what actually happens with the gospel. So if Jesus was a fake Messiah, if He did not rise from the dead, there would be no church today. There would be no gathering of the saints today. We wouldn't have had a great potluck this morning. His name would be one that is forgotten long ago. But, that's not the case. The resurrection changes everything. It all hinges on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, he's just a false messiah, the movement dies. But we see evidence of the resurrection in the fact that we still celebrate it today. So the resurrection changes everything and that is what we're gonna talk about today as we celebrate Easter together. But before we even get into that, I think we should answer, it would be prudent of us to answer the question, Why did the crowds welcome him as Messiah last Sunday? Last Sunday, we talked about the triumphal entry, how Jesus sets everything up, and how as he enters Jerusalem, the crowds welcome him as their Messiah. He formally presents himself as the Messiah, and the crowds begin to cheer and begin to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna just means save me. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're, They're recognizing that he is the Messiah. So how is it that on Sunday, they can welcome him as Messiah, and then Friday, they cry out, crucify him. On Sunday, they welcome him as Messiah, and on Friday, they're yelling for his death. And I think the short answer is, they didn't recognize him as their personal savior, but as the political deliverer that they hoped for. So once again, we see that the Jews had been under rule by different nations for over 400 years. They wanted their freedom So they began to ignore all Old Testament Scripture that spoke of a suffering servant Messiah and began to emphasize the righteous, ruling Messiah. I think this is one of the reasons, one of the biggest lessons we can learn is we need to read Scripture in all of the context. And we need to discover and bend our own will to Scripture, not to twist Scripture to make it fit our own viewpoint. Humans have a tendency to read what they want in Scripture. We have a tendency to bend it to however we want it to be. The Jews in Jesus' day did it. People today do it. And you better believe that you and I don't do it. Or sorry, that we do it. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Just did it. Just kidding. But we do it. And the first step to not doing it, to reading it within its context and applying it appropriately, is to recognize my own personality wants to do this. My own personality wants to twist Scripture. So they desire a righteous, ruling Messiah. Jesus arrives on the scene and he does everything perfectly. It was so perfectly obvious that he was the Messiah, even the stones understood. And we studied that last week as he enters Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and the, the Pharisees say, hey, rebuke all these people that are calling you Messiah. He says, look, it is so obvious, it is so abundantly obvious that I am the Messiah, even the rocks understand. Even the rocks that have no mind, no faculties, they can't actually pick up information, it's so obvious I'm Messiah. Even they understand it. How can you not? So this piqued the Jews' excitement. For them, this meant meant political freedom. Finally, Rome's reign of terror would be over. And that's why there's so much excitement around the triumphal entry. And then throughout the week, Jesus demonstrates His power and authority. He goes in and he cleanses the temple, showing and demonstrating ownership of the temple. And then his enemies come and they start trying to confound him with questions, thinking that they can get him mixed up. And he absolutely confounds his enemies. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them who want to see Jesus fail. They can't get around the fact that he is the Messiah. He does everything to prove he is the Messiah. He even works the signs and the miracle to prove that he is the Messiah. But on Thursday night, he is arrested. And they had to arrest him at night when he was alone because the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were afraid of the crowds. We see this over and over again. They tried to arrest him, but they couldn't because they were afraid of the crowd. So what happens is, if they arrest the man that the Jew, that the normal common Jew thought was the Messiah, then they would have a riot. And what happens if there's a riot? Rome comes in and they take away the Sanhedrin's power. So the Sanhedrin's in a pickle and they need to figure out how can we get rid of Jesus while maintaining our power? And they discover they've got to arrest him well, he's alone. And so they develop this plan. If, if we can arrest him while he's alone, and Judas falls right into their plan, he goes and he gives them a report. Hey, I know where you can get Jesus. He's alone right now. He doesn't have all of these crowds following him. You won't start a riot. So the plan is to arrest him on Thursday night and have him dead by Friday morning and have him dead by Rome's hands so that they won't be guilty of his death. That's the plan. They run into a couple problems with this plan, and I think even they are surprised by what happens. Number one is Pilate doesn't crucify Jesus right away. Pilate finds him to be innocent. And this is kind of a weird thing, because Pilate was known for his brutality. Pilate was known for killing Jews pretty willy-nilly. So he, he surprises them. Now, I think Pilate is kind of bending to their will a little bit. Number one, they bring Jesus right at morning. So it was illegal to have a trial at night. They arrest him Thursday night. They take him back to Caiaphas' house. And they actually hold a trial, an illegal trial. And then at morning time, right as soon as the sun comes up, right around 5 a.m., they hold a legal trial. Boy, it's easy to break rules when you can see in some gray areas, right? But, but, you know, they followed the letter of the law. They had a legal trial. And the second they find him guilty, they run him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate would have to wake up early. They don't want to go into Pilate's house, so he comes outside to them. He's actually being fairly courteous to the Jews. And one of the reasons why is in Rome, Pilate had a protector named Sejanus. Now, Sejanus ends up becoming a traitor to Caesar. And he's executed. And all of a sudden, all these heads that were related to Sejanus start to roll. And Pilate is afraid that his head is going to roll as well. And all the Jews have to do is remind Caesar about Pilate. So Pilate's walking on eggshells now around the Jews. So the Jews think that they've got him under their belt. They think, hey, we can bring Jesus, he'll execute him pretty quickly. And 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 Pilate is kind of folding to their will. And then all of a sudden he says, But wait, this guy is not guilty. How can I go off killing this guy? And then he says, Why don't you go kill him yourself? Well, they know that they can't kill him because then the Jews will look the common Jew will look at them poorly. They have to have Jesus do it. Or, sorry, they have to have Rome kill Jesus. All that takes a little bit longer than the Jews thought. And I think they're a little bit surprised when the crowds wake up and they yell, Crucify him. But why do they yell, Crucify him? Sunday they were yelling, Messiah. Hosanna. Now they're yelling crucify him. And I think it comes down to the amount of disappointment they felt. Which would be directly correlated with the amount of excitement. You know, when you're preparing for something that you're not very excited for, let's say you're going over to someone's house, they're typically known to be a bad cook. So you're preparing yourself for some really bad food, right? And then you get there, and they took some cooking lessons. And all of a sudden, the food is fantastic. You're pretty, you're pretty pleased with that. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, this is pretty good. But let's say that it's flipped around, and you're going to someone's house, and they're known for being this fantastic chef, and you can't wait to, to eat all of the delicacies they're making for you. And you show up, and they're like, oh, by the way, I ran out of time, so I threw some Totinos in the oven. And you're like, so I get some cardboard with some tomato paste on it? Uh, and you were really excited, and now your level of excitement turns into disappointment. Whereas the other way around, you weren't disappointed at all. And that's kind of what, what it's like with Jesus. The, the level of excitement is directly correlated to the level of disappointment, that on Sunday they were so excited because here is this guy claiming to be Messiah. He's got all the signs that prove he's the Messiah. He's doing it. He's working it. He claims it. He shows the signs. He is Messiah. He's even conquered the temple. He's controlling the temple so much so that no one could even carry a bucket of water without his permission. He is the Messiah. And then they wake up on Friday morning and the man that claimed to be Messiah is now beaten and cuffed by Rome. Wait a second. You were supposed to be Messiah. You were supposed to be our Savior. You were the one that was going to overthrow Rome. You were, we we're no longer going to have the shackles of Rome. And here you are shackled by the very one you were supposed to overthrow. The level of excitement is directly correlated to the level of disappointment. And so instead of yelling Messiah, Hosanna, they yell crucify Him. He is a false Messiah. How dare He claim and prove that He's Messiah and then show up, Beaten and cuffed and shackled by Rome. How dare he do it? And that disappointment turned to bitterness and anger and soon instead of yelling, Hosanna, they were yelling, save yourself. Prove you're the Messiah. you saved others. Now save yourself. One of the most important lessons for us to learn is we need to search Scripture. We need not to turn God into a political weapon for our own advantage. But instead, we need to search Scripture and we need to let it change us from the inside out. So they yell, crucify him. And it actually seems as though Gamaliel's advice, though he's going to give it later, would ring true. The crowds gave up on him. Even before the crowds, His own disciples give up on Him. The moment He is arrested, they all flee. Even those who are closest to Him, His own apostles, flee. Just as the other pretender Messiah's disciples would flee. So why do we have a church today? Why do we gather in the name of Jesus today? Because it wasn't just a good teaching or a new philosophy He demonstrated his deity, the fact that he is God come in the flesh by his resurrection. And his resurrection changes everything. And it is his resurrection that the church holds to. It is his resurrection that the church will preach and die for. And we see sermons and sermons of it over and over again in the book of Acts. And for today, we're just going to look at a part of one sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 10. You want to turn with me, if you will, to Acts ten. Peter is preaching to Gentiles, so we can see just like that oil that was lit on fire, and the Jews are slapping at it, and it's just sending fireballs going everywhere, and actually spreading the church. The church started in Jerusalem, and it begins to go work its way outward. And here we come upon a place called Caesarea Maritima. Now, the Gentiles haven't actually had the, the gospel preached to them yet. This is going to be the first time that the go- that the gospel is preached to Gentiles. And so are, he, Peter gets called out to Caesarea Maritima. Now a little something about Caesarea Maritima, it was built by Herod the Great, and it was built as a harbor, but it was also built as a palace to Caesar. So Jews typically didn't go around Caesarea Maritima. It would have been considered a blasphemy for a Jew to go to Caesarea Maritima. So Jews avoided it. They didn't want to go near it. But Peter has been called to preach to the Gentiles at Caesarea Maritima. So we'll pick up in Acts 10, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's the sermon that Peter is preaching. He's preaching it to Gentiles who are hearing it for the first time. And he begins with, as for the word that he sent to Israel, he being God. So God loves all people. God desires that all people come to him. And we actually see Peter confess this in 34 and 35, that he understands how God shows no partiality. For generations, the Jews thought God would show partiality because they are God's elect. God's elect means that they are God's chosen people for a purpose. It's not that God loves them more. It's not that God is going to... Uh, lavish them with more love. It's just simply meaning that God has chosen them for a purpose. And then he gets into what the purpose is. So because they were chosen for a purpose, they thought that they had like some kind of favoritism among God. And that's what Peter is discovering here, is that the Jews didn't have favoritism among God. God loves all people. But as for the word that he sent to Israel, this was their special purpose. This is why they're considered the elect because they had a special purpose that God called them out for. And we'll even see all the way down in verse 42 uh, and 43, that all of the prophets, to him all the prophets bear witness, that their special assignment was to to preach the word, to have the gospel, that God would reveal the gospel through them, and all the Old Testament... All of the prophets from the Old Testament are going to point towards Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what Peter has discovered, is that all the Old Testament, everything is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is the climax of our word. Jesus is the climax of the Bible. So all of the Old Testament is going to point towards Jesus, and then after the cross, after the resurrection, it all comes to how then should we live? How does all of this then play out? So that's going to be the conclusion. It's a long conclusion, isn't it? But that's the conclusion. So everything from the Gospels to a revelation is like the conclusion. Everything from Genesis all the way to the cross is, the, is building up to the climax. And the climax that changes everything is the cross and the resurrection. So that's what he's getting at. As for this word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So the good news is that you can have peace through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. But along with this good news often comes bad news. And the bad news is that you and I have enmity with God. That there is a separation between us and God because we have rebelled against God. So God created us all in His image to have this wonderful relationship with Him. But when sin entered the world through Adam's rebellion, then there was a separation between us and God. And we have all entered into that sin. We have all rebelled against God in some form or another. We have all shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And when we do that, there is a separation between us and God. Because we are trying to claim God's throne as the creator of all. When we try to call our own shots, we're trying to usurp God's authority and God's power. I think of it like this. Let's say you were in a kingdom. And let's say you were the king. Or you, for women, maybe you're the queen. But you have the final authority in that kingdom, right? You're the king, you're the queen, you have the final authority. What you say goes. And you have this wonderful servant and you love this servant and this servant and you get along and you do everything together and they serve you faithfully and they do what you tell them to. And then one day they look at you and they say, you know, you've been great as king or queen. You've been this great ruler. I've absolutely loved serving under you. But I really think things would be better if you just stepped off your throne and I stepped on. Could you, as the ruler, continue with good standing with this person if from that point on, they wanted to be the ruler and they were constantly trying to overthrow you? It would put a rift in your relationship, wouldn't it? Your BFF would no longer be your BFF. We do that with God. We try to overthrow Him And we want to be king of our own world. We want to be God with our own world. And because we have tried to usurp his authority, because we have tried to usurp his throne, there is a rift between us and God. And because we have done it, we deserve an eternal separation from God. But God is a great king who loves us, with such a great love, that He came in the flesh and He paid the price on your behalf so that you could have peace with Him, so that you could have this perfect relationship with Him. And that's the good news that they are preaching, that we can once again have this perfect relationship with our Creator because of Jesus. And when you have that relationship restored, you can become fully who you were designed to be. Your Creator created you with a purpose. Your Creator created you with meaning. And one of the reasons why we have seen so many people searching all over the place and doing so many crazy things is because they're so lost without their Creator. If you've been searching, if you've been hurt, if you're just lost and purposeless and you think other things are going to fill the void and then you fill it and, and you realize that that thing didn't fill the void really. And so then you start searching for something else and you realize that that also didn't really satisfy. So maybe it's money and you follow money or maybe it's a career and so you follow a career and you pretty soon find out all these things aren't really going to satisfy. It's because the only thing that will truly satisfy is a reconciled relationship with your Creator. And when you have that, you can be content in any situation in your life. And so that's the good news, is that you can have peace, and you can be content, and you can be so fully satisfied with your Creator. Peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. This term, Lord of all, is just a pagan term for deity. So what is he getting at? He's here in Caesarea Maritima, and he's preaching to all these pagans, and he says, look, Jesus is really the Lord of all. He's really the God that you've been searching for. He's actually where there is a temple dedicated to Caesar and in a temple dedicated to Caesar he's saying, look, Jesus is really the God you're looking for. And then he gives 37 and 38, kind of gives a brief description of Jesus' time and his ministry. You yourselves know. Now what's interesting, right off the bat, he says you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Now remember, these are Gentiles living in a Gentile city. Now, granted, it is a Gentile city in Israel, but it's interesting that they already know about Jesus. Jesus was wildly popular. There were stories all over the place about Him because He had done so much. And so He doesn't have to explain all of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. They've already heard. He doesn't have to lay everything out because they've already heard. So you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And God was with him. And so he's just giving him this. This is the idea is that Jesus had this message that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and all the signs and miracles that he's doing, all of those healings that he did, those were to authenticate his claim that he is the Messiah. That's what he's getting at. And we are witnesses. So a witness is someone who's there to observe and report. That's what he was there to do. He was there to observe what, what Jesus had done, and he was to report all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. Now, almost any time you see they put him to death, or this term they there, once again, he's not talking about the Jewish people as much as he's talking about the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership is who put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. The crucifixion was so bloody and gruesome that oftentimes it was actually considered impolite in civilized society to use the term crucifixion. So instead of saying they crucified him, he's he's trying to be polite and he uses the term to hang him on a tree. The Romans were great at torture. They knew how to torture people. They knew how to absolutely torment people until they died. And that is what Jesus went through. And in verse 40, we pick up but. That is a contrasting conjunction with a lot of meaning. If any other false messiah had gone through this. If any other person claiming to be Messiah had gone through the cross, had been crucified, had been tortured to death, that's the end of the story. Time and time again, this actually happened. There were actually false messiahs that would arise. Rome would kill them. End of story. You and I, when we die... But, for Jesus, it's not the end. For Jesus, the crucifixion was not the end. Being tortured to death was not the end. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So not only did God raise him, but he also began to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Now, we don't know what the criteria was. We don't know why God chose certain people to be those witnesses. But we do know that Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses. Over 500 witnesses. And when Paul lays that out in 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like a reference. He's saying, hey, check out these references we have for the resurrection. It's like when you go apply for the job and you, you want a, a stack of references, right? Or usually it's three references that you have to give. I just actually gave a reference for somebody. You want somebody that's reliable. You want someone that's going to give the truth, right? And so you give out these references. And Paul is saying right here, we have references. And Peter here is saying, there are references. Don't believe me? Go back to Jerusalem. Talk to some of the other guys. It's not me only that has seen the resurrected Jesus. There are others that have seen Him. There are others whose lives have been changed by Him. Other people have witnessed Jesus as risen from the dead. Now, there was no argument that Jesus was dead because he was crucified by the Romans. The Romans knew how to kill people. They weren't like a bunch of buffoons. In fact, it was so, it was so important that they killed correctly that if for some reason there was a report that someone wasn't dead after a crucifixion, all of the soldiers that were involved with the crucifixion were then crucified. Now you're a soldier in charge of a crucifixion. Are you going to let something slide? If, you, if you're wrong, you're going to be up on that cross? Oh no. You're making sure they're dead, dead. There's no question on whether or not Jesus would die. died. But these people might question whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what he's getting to here. Don't believe me? Go talk to one of the 500 other witnesses. There are witnesses that are willing to give a testimony unto death. And that's important to recognize as well, is that it's a testimony unto death. People are willing to die for what they believe is true, but no one's willing to die for what they know is false. If Peter had made up the resurrection, he wouldn't be willing to die for it. If the other apostles and other witnesses had just made it up, they're like, hey, I got a great idea, You know, they just killed Jesus. Let's say that they rose Him from the dead so that we can snatch some power. Well, once Stephen was stoned in Acts 8, that'd be the end of that, right? Oh, they're going to kill us for this lie? We're done with this lie. But they continued to profess it because they knew it was the truth. And then he goes on, that not only did they witness this, but who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead So not only did these witnesses see him, but they ate and drank with him. And this is what Paul's getting at here, or what Peter's getting at here, is that it wasn't just like a hallucination. We weren't just seeing visions. This just wasn't like some kind of spiritual figure that showed up in front of us that was like a ghost type figure. No. He was Jesus in the flesh, so much flesh, though, that he actually ate and drank with us. Last week, we talked a little bit about Bart Ehrman, who who is a historian, who's also an atheist, but he also believes that the church, the early church, definitely saw a resurrected Jesus, and he's like, they had to have just like a mass hallucination about it, because there's no way people would do what they did without having this, this true vision Of Jesus, And what Peter's getting at here is that, I mean, Peter kind of saw that argument ahead of time, right? And he jumps in front of it by saying, no, we didn't just hallucinate him because he ate and drank with us. Like, we didn't just hallucinate food disappearing and, and wine disappearing in front of our eyes. We actually ate and drank with him. It wasn't just a hallucination. There was a real physical Jesus that ate and drank with us. Over 500 witnesses... And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged. Now, what's interesting is this word commanded means he compelled. And it's like this idea that the evidence was so overwhelming that they had to do something with the evidence. Have you ever had something in your life like that? Where you you had something that you believed, maybe it was about yourself, or maybe it's about something else. And then the evidence like kept hitting you upside down. Like just boom, like a brick in the face. The evidence just kept hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. And finally you're like, I have to do something about this. What I've been believing is false and there is the truth. And I absolutely have to change the way I am because the evidence is hitting me, smacking me upside the face. That's what Paul's saying is the evidence was so overwhelming that he was compelled. He had to do something with the evidence. And so he is compelled to pre- to tell the people and to testify. And what is he preaching and testifying? That he is the one, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So we see that this Jesus who rose from the dead is also going to be judge over all. And I know some people like to emphasize that God is love because God is love. And they like to de-emphasize God's righteousness and his justice and that God is going to judge. But the fact that he is going to judge actually reveals how loving he is. I like to use the example of, let's say you are with your family in your house. And a murderer breaks into your house and brutally tortures every single member of your family. And then kills them in front of your face. And you're like, well, I'm a person of love. So after they're done with that, let's just go have some ice cream. That would actually reveal that you never loved your family. The fact that you would be fuming and angry and want justice at that moment reveals how much you really love your family. Every day, people who are made in God's image are abused, and used, and tortured. And for God just to turn a blind eye would not reveal a God of love, but a careless God. If God could turn a blind eye to all of the violence and disgusting crimes that are going on, if He could just turn a blind eye to that, He would be a God that doesn't care. The fact that He judges reveals that He is a God that loves and a God that cares. And every single one of us has at some point in our lives rebelled against Him and mistreated one of His creations. And every single one of us deserves His judgment. So what is the way to avoid this judgment? To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That was the whole purpose of his coming. Was to come and pay the price for your sin. To take on the judgment that you deserve. And the only way out of that judgment the only way to escape God's judgment for sin is to believe in Him. To put your faith and trust in Christ. And when you do that, He no longer sees you as a sinner, as unholy, as someone deserving of judgment. And He begins to see you as someone who is holy and pure and above reproach. Gamaliel gave advice. If it's of man, the movement will die off. But if it's of God, there is no way you can stop it. I think history has taken Gamaliel's advice, and has demonstrated over and over again that the Gospel is unstoppable. That Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins and rose again. And the church, no matter what happens on this earth, the church will continue to grow because it is of God. Because he is the Messiah, he has died as the suffering servant for your sins and my sins. The church is evidence of this. There is a judgment to come. Because you and I, at one point in our lives, have offended God, have abused his creation. We deserve judgment the only way to escape that judgment from an almighty Creator is to put our faith and trust in Him. Have you done that yet, dear Lord? We thank You for coming to this earth and paying the price for our sins. We understand that You didn't have to, and we know we didn't deserve it. And yet you did it. And not only did you do that, but you rose on the third day to prove that you are not a false Messiah. That this wasn't just some fancy words or tricks. And then beyond that, you continued to grow the church. And beyond all of humanity's efforts to stop the church, you continue to grow it now. And we pray for those who do not believe in you for those who haven't put their trust in you yet, that you would use the church in a way to show who you are, that more and more would come to find forgiveness of their sins. In your name we pray.